Hello, and welcome to episode 35 of Tech Swamp. We have our host and friendly membership team here today. Hey, Brad. Why, hello there. Hello, Caitlin. What's up? You know, just membership chillin'. Chillin', per use. Uh, and of course, myself, Alex. So this month, we're talking Connected Health Tools and the Life-Saving Telehealth Modernization Act with Senior Director for Public Policy and Friend of the Pod, Greg Default. But before we get into that, we're going to hit tech history and run through some DC headlines. November 6th, 2006, 14 years ago this month, the internet boasted 100 million websites. That's right, this milestone capped an extraordinary year in which the internet added 27.4 million sites, easily topping the previous full year growth record of 17 million from 2005. The internet doubled in number of sites since May 2004, when the number topped 50 million. Blogs and small business websites drove the giant growth in 2006, with major increases in free blogging services at Google and Microsoft. Today, the internet is now home to more than 2 billion, yes, with a B, websites, and by the time you're done listening to this episode of TechSwamp, there's going to be another thousand more. Uh, And that's all for Tech History. That sound means it's time for What's Brewing in D.C. Caitlin and Brad, what are the top tech headlines? So although we've historically ended what's brewing with an election update, we are in a post-election world, so we're updating you at the top of the segment. On Saturday, November 7th, the Associated Press called the election for former Vice President, now President-elect Biden. Since then, President Trump and his legal team have filed dozens of lawsuits across six swing states citing voter fraud, despite failing to present evidence of the alleged fraud in court. As a result, of those 36 cases filed, 24 have been dropped, leaving Nevada and Pennsylvania as the only two states with active cases as of November 23rd. The Electoral College will convene on December 14th and is expected to formally elect former Vice President Biden as the 46th President of the United States. Another election update. This time we're taking it to the Hill. There are two crucial runoff elections approaching, and they're both taking place in the state of Georgia. Runoff elections are held when no candidate wins the required majority of votes, and that just so happened to occur in both Senate races. Republican Senator David Perdue faces Democrat John Ossoff in one race, while Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler faces Democrat Raphael Warnock in the second. All eyes in D.C. and across the country are on this race, as the winner of these races will determine who has control of slash is at least tied for control of the Senate for the 117th Congress. Republicans only need to win one race to keep control, where Democrats would have to take wins in both races to tie ours for seats in the Senate. Runoffs are set to take place on January 5th, with early voting as soon as December 14th. And before we switch gears, keep your eyes and ears peeled for a post-election podcast with our executive director, Chelsea Thomas, next month, where we'll be talking about what to expect from the incoming Biden administration as far as tech policy goes, as well as what the 117th Congress will prioritize. So last week, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and Twitter's Zach Dorsey testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee at a hearing titled... Breaking the News, Censorship, Suppression, and the 2020 Election. Now, much of that four-hour hearing was spent discussing content moderation, with many Republican members of the committee concerned about anti-conservative bias on these platforms. Democrats on the committee focused their attention on the spread of misinformation and the role that social media platforms play in that spread. 
You can find more info on this hearing in our show notes. And we're rounding out what's brewing with the TikTok update. November 12th, the date that TikTok was set to be banned in the U.S., has come and gone, and U.S. users of the popular app are still swiping. With the Trump administration winding down and shifting priorities, it's increasingly likely that TikTok and its parent company, ByteDance, will continue to operate in the U.S. Of course, you can never say never under the current administration, but it's looking like TikTok is safe for the foreseeable future. And that's all for What's Brewing. As we mentioned earlier, we're sitting down with our Senior Director for Public Policy and FOTP, friend of the pod, Graham Dufault, for a discussion around connected health tools and what we can do to ensure patients always have access to this convenient, life-saving form of care. Um, Hey, Graham. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Always good to be on the pod. Always good to have you on the pod. Um, So, Graham, (laughs) let's dive right in. Um, We're here to talk about telehealth, specifically the Telehealth Modernization Act. Um, But before we do that, I want to give our listeners kind of like a refresh on where we are sort of generally with telehealth uh, and telehealth reimbursement in the U.S. Right. So uh, before the pandemic, telehealth visits were uh, not widely available at all for patients that are Medicare beneficiaries. Uh, And Medicare also is the largest insurer in the United States and helps cover some of our most vulnerable populations. So real quick, just want to ask a question. Um, When you say widely available, that means that some patients were able to? How how did that work out? Yeah, that's right. So the Medicare statute that governs CMS, the the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which um, is responsible for those coverage decisions for Medicare beneficiaries, um, is really constrained by this, uh, the statute. Um, and uh, that's the law that Congress passed back in uh, the late 90s um, around uh, and putting guardrails on what the agency can do to cover live audio and video visits uh, for Medicare beneficiaries. So when the person is at a qualified originating site is when they're able to get um, their telehealth visit uh, um, covered. And so that, unfortunately, a qualified originating site does not include the home. It doesn't include very many places at all. There's a, there's a, um, an exhaustive list provided, and they are basically categories of doctor's offices. So if you want to have a live voice video, uh, visit with your doctor, you have to go to another doctor's office to do that, um, which seems, sounds really ridiculous now because the technical capabilities are well beyond that. Right. Um, but uh, because of the statutory restrictions, uh, the agency isn't able to cover those services uh, for these patients. And then on top of the originating site exhaustive list, then the patient also has to be in a rural Um, health professional shortage area. And there's only uh, so many of those areas designated uh, by the federal government across the United States. And so the result is that uh, very few Medicare beneficiaries uh, are actually eligible to have a live voice video visit covered by, um, by their insurance. That's a really interesting regulatory framework where it seems not, not many folks can kind of take advantage of telehealth and the promise that it brings. Uh, But from my understanding, all of this changed when the U.S. was hit by COVID-19 and suddenly all covered Americans are cleared to use telemedicine. Is that right? 
That's right. All all, uh, all Medicare beneficiaries uh, are are not constrained by those statutory um, restrictions, basically. And so the agency is is free to cover them um, where uh, where it has decided that that service is is covered by Medicare. And so uh, this is a huge win for patients. And our Connected Health Initiative, which you've talked about on the pod before, has been advocating for these telehealth services. Uh, for years. So when the Department of Health and Human Services waived that in-person requirement, um, which it did with congressional approval uh, in in one of the uh, COVID-19 stimulus bills, uh, we saw that as a huge step in the right direction. Um, But unfortunately, the approval that uh, HHS has to waive those restrictions and ensure that uh, beneficiaries can can access telehealth widely expires when the public health emergency is over. And that is set to expire uh, in the next couple of months. So it needs to be extended. uh, But the real problem is that we need a permanent change to the statute so that patients and providers aren't wondering uh, when their telehealth coverage is going to go away because uh, the public health emergency expires. Um, And I don't want to just like drop a bunch of sad truth bombs and then like end the pod. Um, (laughs) You know, I think uh, there is some good news that you alluded to. So let's talk about it. Um, The Telehealth Modernization Act um, and sort of what it is and what it's going to do for patients uh, and sort of the level of care that they can receive. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, we're very supportive of the Telehealth Modernization Act, and it was it was introduced recently in both the House and Senate side. So it originated in the Senate side and recently uh, picked up a, a House side companion bill, which is identical. And, and the bill uh, makes those permanent changes uh, to the underlying uh, statute so that we don't have to uh, rely on that temporary waiver uh, if the bill is enacted. And so it, it, uh, it permanently basically sidelines uh, the ge- geographical restrictions and the originating site restrictions. And so what it does is it adds any site at which the eligible telehealth individual is located at the time the service is furnish- furnished as a qualified originating site. And that, that effectively removes the, that originating site problem that we've had um, all along. And uh, it, it also removes those geographic restrictions where you have to be in a rural uh, uh, health professional shortage area. Uh, it removes those restrictions altogether as well. Um, so there, there are other bills out there that uh, take on sort of a similar uh, approach, uh, but don't go quite as far. And that includes bills that add, you know, quote unquote, the home of an individual to the list. And this is a big step forward. But we uh, we like any site where the patient is located a little better because it includes patient populations um, uh, that are really important. And, and those, those patient populations are, you know, those who are experiencing homelessness, those without access to broadband at home, and those who are members of at-risk communities and, and, and might have unstable living conditions where um, they really don't want to be at home when they receive, uh, um, when they uh, conduct their, their visit virtually with their physician. So, um, so, so, you know, beyond the, the pandemic, um, sidelining that originating site and, and sidelining the geographic restrictions are going to be extremely important um, to address, you know, three concerns that 
are on policymakers' minds and they've grappled with for a long time. And, um, you know, the first I would say is inequitable access to care for ethnic minorities, socioeconomically disadvantaged and marginalized communities. Uh, this is this is really important. This is something that policymakers have tried to work on for, for years. Um, and, and so removing those geographic restrictions um, and removing uh, the originating site problem is going to go a long way toward making sure uh, those Medicare Medicare beneficiaries that fall into those categories can have access to virtual care, which is, again is increasingly important. Secondly, inequitable access to care for rural Americans. And so these are folks who are having um, to drive longer distances to see caregivers uh, as rural health centers continue to shutter um, and uh, are going to need better access to virtual care uh, across the board. So uh, the, the rural problem is something that would be uh, directly uh, ameliorated by uh, removing those restrictions. So the third uh, bucket I would say is the, the problem of, of dealing with the, uh, the physician shortage, which is uh, as of a, a year and a half ago or so, uh, about 30,000 physicians um, short, and it could balloon to nearly 122,000. That's the high end of the, of the estimate by 2032. Um, and so it's, we're talking about it, an enormous shortage in um, any, any policy that can help uh, extend the reach of physicians and extend the reach of caregivers generally uh, by enabling them to use um, uh, virtual healthcare services uh, is going to be extremely beneficial and will go a long way toward uh, assisting with that policy goal. So I, I think as as lawmakers and, and folks in the administration and the in the um, in the new administration uh, realize, the case has really been made for telehealth. And I think you've you've heard from a number of uh, healthcare providers that have reported that you know telehealth visits, ambulatory visits, that's visits where where the patient is healthy enough to go to the physician's office or conduct the the uh, the visit themselves and isn't you know bedridden for example um, you know jump from just a few percentage points uh, so of all of those visits you know just maybe one to two percent of them were telehealth visits and then at the height of the pandemic you saw those jump to like a, about fifty percent for for a number of these providers um, and then going forward and into the future, they're predicting um, that the you know these telehealth visits aren't going to go back down to zero to two percent. They're going to go, uh, uh, you know, um, stabilize at about twenty percent. And so that reality um, is not going to be possible, um, and certainly not for Medicare beneficiaries if those restrictions snap back into place once the public health emergency ends. And so we got to do something, and we've got to do something about it soon. And that's why we think the Telehealth Modernization Act is the right approach. Uh, and we're going to we're going to continue to urge uh, Congress, you know, both chambers to to advance the bill as soon as possible and um, on any moving vehicle going forward. Absolutely, it's such an important issue. It's something that we really care about at the Association and at CHI. Um, so it's obviously something we're going to keep working on. Um, so you know, happy to hear more about this really important bill. Um, Graham, thank you so much for joining us on the pod. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Yeah. And now it's time for Random Identifier. Um, Brad, I'm going to start with you. What do you have for us? 
All right, this month we're going to make our return to the music world, fortunately, right. away from the fastest man in the world. Uh, right. um, <laughs> and we are going to go with a band from Chicago called Dead, spelled D-E-H-D. Um, huh. They're a little bit uh, grounded in surf rock, but very, very indie, have a female lead vocalist, and it's uh, some pretty solid fall vibes, surprisingly, for uh, something that I just described as surf rock yeah that sounds very up my alley i yeah i'm literally googling right now yeah. this band <laughs> d d e h d yeah that's right dead and uh i i found them actually i've talked about twin peaks a band i'm very fond of on this show before um dead was actually founded by the sound guy for twin peaks mm-hmm. so he tours with them and does their sound um and then got the the opportunity to be the opening band and that's how i kind of found them that's awesome yeah, really excited. I, I ordered the record back when it came out. Uh, it unfortunately still has not come, but with um, COVID and the effects on shipping, I'm only moderately upset, not not supremely. <laughs> so that's a good thing. And is this like, are they, is this like their first album? Yes, absolutely. Oh, cool. Really, that's awesome. really good stuff too. Cool. Looking forward to it. Um, Caitlin, what do you have for us this month? Mine is also music related, um, but mine is also an embarrassing story and music relation. Okay, so I'm really excited because this band that I really like called Minx Miracle Medicine. Um, They're actually from West Virginia, Harper's Ferry, close to where I went to college. Um, But throughout quarantine, and we've talked about this on the pod before, of like Instagram going live... Uh, for like Instagram concerts or whatever during COVID. And so I joined the live stream for one of them and I had only seen them in person like one time. Um, And it was at Pearl Street Warehouse. They opened for another band that I was going to see. Um, And they played the song called Beautiful Losers. And I swear I had heard the song before. Like this song, they played it. I'd never heard it before, but I was like, I know the song. Like this is a song that's familiar to me. And so uh, when they were doing the live stream, they were like, what song do you want us to play? Like, tell us songs you want us to play if, if, you know, you want. So I said, play Beautiful Loser or whatever. So then they did. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I love the song. I was like singing along like like I knew the I knew the song. Yeah. And I messaged the band on Instagram after and was like, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. Like for playing that song or whatever. It's so beautiful. Like, I love your cover of Beautiful Losers because I know I've heard the song before. Yeah. The woman messages me back. <laughs> oh my god! I was like, I wrote this song. Oh my god! And I was like, <laughs> what? Like she was like, thank you so much. Da, 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 da. Like, but I actually wrote this song. And I was like, what? You wrote this song? How do I know all the words? And I've only heard it one time. Like I know this song. I feel like I know this song. Anyways. I've been searching for it, searching for it. They finally dropped their latest album, which features Beautiful Losers on it. And I've been streaming it, listening to it, really excited. We'll be buying it on vinyl um, very soon. And um, unfortunately, it's a song that I love so much and feel really connected to. But I'm also extremely triggered by my own embarrassment (laughs) um, related to the song. So I feel like a beautiful loser. Um, For this whole interaction, and to anyone from the band Mix Miracle Medicine, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm humiliated. I I really love that story. I feel like the thing, the first thing that I loved is that I think that they have a great band name, like a really great band name. 
Yes. But I also love how, like, gracious she was about the whole situation. Because, <laughs> like, so many so many musicians can be, like, like kind of very standoffish when it comes to, like, songs that they've written. So, well, like, I would cool have been. I would have been, rude. like, you idiot. Like, I wrote this, you stupid, like, dumbass. <laughs> no, I like that it didn't go in that direction. She knows she has a fan in you. Yeah, she was like, oh, this poor sad girl has no idea what the hell she's talking about. (laughs) Um, Well, actually, uh, we didn't talk about this in advance, but mine is also music related. Um, Yeah. It is the trifecta. Although I'm going to talk about a person that I've definitely talked about before, um, and that person is Dolly Parton. Mm. Um, And I'm going to tell you why. Dolly Parton has done so many things in the last month that I just feel like we need to talk about them. So, um, like, literally all of this happened basically in the month of November, which I think is just, like, wild. So she makes Colbert, Stephen Colbert, cry on his show because she sang a folk song that she (laughs) used to sing as a child. And it's also beautiful. It didn't make me cry, but, like, I get why Colbert cried. Um, She uh, basically, like, it became public that she uh, made a generous contribution to Moderna's coronavirus vaccine uh, research. Um, she released a Christmas album called A Holly Dolly Christmas. Um, yeah, she has a special on Netflix, or I guess it's, it's like a, it's like a holiday, I, do you call it a special? I don't know what you call it, whatever. Yeah, like a holiday special. I think that's what they did for, like, uh, John Legend did one on NBC. I think it was just, like, the Tegan or Stevens Christmas special or something like that. Yeah. So, uh, she released one of those, it's called Christmas on the Square on Netflix. She's not really in it. Well, I don't know that for sure, but based on what I've read, she's not really in it, but like there's songs from Holly Dolly Christmas on it. Um, and she also released a book (laughs) earlier this month called Song Teller, My Life in Lyrics, where she tells like the stories behind her songs. And then like also released like all of these photographs that people haven't seen before of like stuff from her career. Um... And she did an interview with Oprah on Oprah's Apple TV uh, Plus show. Uh, And that's where people have been, like, talking about Dolly Parton, talking about aging. Um, And she, once again, is just perfect and wonderful. Um, And one more thing. This is technically from October, but I just bought the book on Friday, so I'm counting it as part of this month. Um, A a journalist, her name is Sarah Smarsh, she had done this, like, four-part series about... um, both her experiences and the women in her life um, who she, like, grew up in sort of, um, you know, a very rural part of the United States. And a lot of the songs that Dolly Parton uh, wrote, especially, like, earlier in her career, are really about sort of growing up there and then. Um, And anyway, so she kind of ties the stories of, like, women in her family to Dolly Parton's, like, songs. and I haven't uh, started reading it yet, but it's the next book I'm going to read, and I'm very excited to read it. And so basically, I just wanted to take a moment to recognize Dolly Parton as the continued wonder and role model uh, for me personally. She's a queen. She's a queen. Yeah, I love that. A queen that. amongst Absolute, peasants. A legend. Yeah. The thing that I think I love the most about Dolly Parton is that like I've never heard anyone say anything bad about Dolly Parton. Right. Yeah, no, yeah. like, no one can be beefing with Dolly or else there's something wrong with them. Right. Yeah, who takes the side of the person that's against Dolly Parton? 
I, I don't know, and I don't ever want to meet that person. <laughs> I don't know, and I don't want to know. Right, exactly. <laughs> and I feel like all of this, like, way back many, many, many text months ago, we talked about um, there was, like, this thing, and people were going to storm Area 51. Yes. And, <laughs> and we were talking about, like, who you would want to bring to, like, show the aliens that we're actually okay. And I feel like someone, I think it maybe was Ashley, um said Dolly Parton and like this is just like reinforced all of that for me that like she's the right person to be sort of like our ambassador to like any <laughs> like extraterrestrials okay. whoever make their way in that case I think we need to immediately contact the incoming administration let them know that yeah. the ambassador to the aliens <laughs> yeah. is none Dolly other Parton. than secretary of ambassador to the aliens Dolly yeah. Parton yeah um I support this I just made up that title with ambassador and secretary of. So there has to be a new department and then she's an ambassador as well. I mean, she's she's worth it. She's worth that new department, in my Agreed. humble opinion. <laughs> Agree. Okay, guys, that's it for Tech Swamp. If you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, head over to our website and make your way to the podcast section. We'll have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. And of course, we want to give a shout out to Brad Goodall, who's composed our podcast Awesome Music. Thank you, Brad. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, we would love a rate and review. Five stars only, please. <laughs> and that's all for today, folks. Everyone say bye. 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 bye.